The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. All right, hopefully you're still in Hosea. You can stay there. This is our, our last of three Sundays, and we're working through the claim that are now approximately 2,000 years uh, church age was not only foreknown by God, but foredeclared in Hosea 3, 4 through 5. And we read that together and explained that the many days of Hosea 3 is this current age. The many days that Israel would be without essentially political kingship, without sacrifice and temple worship, and without revelation, as it were, licit or illicit. And we said this claim that we're saying this was what was foreclared by God was sufficiently clear uh, for us to stand on that we could have surety in our interpretation and in God's words. But we talked about it was a Sherlock Holmes type clarity, not a sky is blue type clarity. In fact, as we read this together, we said, yeah, that's, I don't see it, Matt. I don't see it right off the, right off the cuff there. It's pretty short. Uh, you even said, Matt, there's four different interpretations, right? And we looked at two of them and, one of them even said, no, no, the many days that they're without those things, that's the exile, right? That's right before when Hosea uh, gave his message. And then the latter days, the last days, that's the standing New Testament term for the church age. And so really the return of, of Israel to God is a spiritual one. And it's the church and the goodness of God and his benefits are all spiritual ones, the fruit of the spirit. And we said, hey, that's actually a, a pretty strong interpretation. There's good reasons for that. Uh, it's consistent within a certain framework, uh, hermeneutical framework. Uh, hermeneutics is just your method of interpretation, uh, interpreting. And I'm going to give a plug for Frank soon, uh, teaching a class on that with us. But, but nevertheless, it was a, a reasonably strong interpretation. And so he said that just adds to the lack of clarity. So how is it that you're saying that this is a clear passage in describing our current age and that we, like the Israelite psalmist, can say how long and wait for a restoration of Israel? How can you say that, Matt? How can you say that? Um, this gives us firm footing for a period when there has been thousands of years without profit, without signs, without wonders. How does this give us the firm footing that you claimed? And I said, well, again, it's Sherlock Holmes type clarity. So we needed clues. And last week we found two of them. And you'll recall the first was, hey, this is sequenced. And you'll recall we used that a recipe for rice and said in the same way that in English we might say first do this next do this next do this and you can see there's a sequence similarly in Hebrew there's a way of grammar that says here's the start and the next happens and the next and the next and we said that's not so insightful when it comes to Hosea's story that's clear enough even without that little insight but it is helpful when you think that each of those elements of Hosea's story corresponds to an element of the story between God and Israel. And in the same way that it was sequential or in order and God and Hosea's story with Gomer, it's sequential. It's in order with God's story with Israel. And so that's a first clue that we'll, we'll look at today and see how that helps us to interpret Hosea three. And then second, we said, Hey, in the middle of this story, this narrative, there was a poetic section, a poem, a song, as it were of Hosea two. And the interesting thing that we learned was, and, uh, I won't go into the details today, and you can, as David said, look on online for the Wednesday night teaching, but each section within that song or within that poem corresponded to a section in the story. 
And we said that was helpful because it's just going to give us a little bit more data as we get to maybe some unclear, like, hey, what is what does this mean? What does Hosea and Gomer's story here mean for God and Israel? Well, we had another uh, we had another body, a, a poet that we could look at and say, well, let's see if that helps us any. And we'll chase that clue down, at least in one key section today as well. So that's a review and then an introduction for today. Um, An introduction for today. This is the last of those. We're going to do two things, two main goals today, and then we'll be back in this this Wednesday. David teaching us from the Psalms. We'll be back Sunday. David teaching us from Second Peter. But we do want to finish today, and we have two main goals. We're going to use those two clues, and we're going to walk through the story of Hosea and Gomer with a view towards understanding Hosea three four through five. And at the end, it will be clear. I hope that Hosea 3, 4 to 5 doesn't picture the exile and the church age, but rather the many days are the age that we're currently living in, the church age, and the last days when Israel returns to God and to his goodness is, is a true returning where God blesses them in the land, namely the millennial kingdom. But that's only one of our goals. The other goal, as we've said each time we've gone through this, is I want to not just give clarity as to what the prophecy means, but I want to talk a little bit about how we can learn from it in terms of viewing God's character and imitating him, because there is some really, for me at least, helpful application, and I think it might be helpful for you as well. So that's the goal. Everybody with me? Okay. All right, so we're going to walk through the story of Hosea and Gomer. So you're going to want to start not in Hosea 3, but in Hosea 1, because that's where the story begins. And I have... Um, maybe 50% more notes than I've ever had up here. So I'm going to try to go quickly, but also try not to go so fast that it's hard to follow. So buckle up and we will do our best to make it through and, uh, but do it in a clear and interesting way. So Hosea one, the story begins with God telling Hosea to marry a harlot because he says explicitly, this is indicative of Israel's relationship to God, right? God had entered into a covenant with Israel, and that's going to be really important, especially for our application. Marriage is a covenant. You read in Malachi 2.14, Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. They were, they were not treating their, their spouses well in that post-exilic day. Yahweh's been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you've dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So this Marriage of Hosea and Gomer is an apt description of the covenant between God and Israel that was made way back at Mount Sinai, I think around 1450 BC. Don't worry about exacts there, but he's asking Hosea to enter into this marriage because he wants to begin a story where it symbolizes the relationship between God and Israel. So around 755, we don't have exact dates, but around 755 BC, Hosea goes and marries a harlot, marries Gomer, so that the story can begin. And importantly, that is the first in our sequence of events. There's Hosea 1. That's the first in our sequence of events. You'll see on the very bottom left of the slide, around 755, Hosea starts his ministry. He marries Gomer, and now we have a symbolic representation, as it were, between God and Israel in the story of Hosea and Gomer. Okay, so far so good. All right, let's look at Hosea 1, 3. It's the, 
uh, as he marries Gomer, he says, you're going to have children and these children are going to mean something. They're going to be children of harlotry and their births and their names are going to be prophetical. They're going to be significant as to what's going to happen between God and Israel. And the first one born is Jezreel. So I'll start to read these. Verse three, Hosea went and took Gomer and she conceived and bore him a son. And Yahweh said to him, name him Jezreel for yet a little while. And I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel and it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So I wanted to read that one because it's not quite as clear as just the marriage of Hosea and Gomer and what it indicates. And you'll notice it indicates three things, right? He gave three things that it indicates. It's going to be Jezreel, the birth of the son, is symbolic or representative or predictive of three things. Namely, he's going to punish the house of Jehu. He's going to put an end to the kingdom of Israel, and he's going to break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel, right? Three things, all from that son. So what are those three things, and when did they happen? Well, first, the bloodshed of Jezreel. Jehu was the reigning king. He was going to be punished for the bloodshed of Jezreel. That's in 2 Kings 10. You'll remember Ahab from our study on kings. God grew tired of Ahab and was ready to punish him for his wickedness. And he did so by anointing Jehu. Elisha anointed Jehu king. And he put an end to Ahab's line at Jezreel. Remember Jezebel and being thrown from the tower. And he killed the 70, I think it was, sons of uh, Ahab and exterminated, extinguished the line of Ahab at Jezreel. Now, we don't have time. We barely have time to do what I'm attending to do today. We don't have time to explain how or why God's punishing Jehu for something that he sent him to do, ultimately. But he is punishing him for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And again, I don't have time to, to reconcile that for us. But I want to at least give you the context of, of what is happening here. And God had promised at that time for Jehu to have four generations on the throne of Israel, Jehu being the first, he was going to have four generations. <clears throat> now, for us, it's important, and you see it in verse uh, one. Verse one, Jeroboam was the third of those four, not the first Jeroboam. Y'all remember Jeroboam the first, who was the one that split off in the days of Solomon's son Rehoboam and set up the golden uh, calves up in uh, northern Israel. Not him. This is Jeroboam the second, and he was very important because Jeroboam II really brought back some glory to Israel. Jehu uh, dethroned Ahab, started the line that would last for four generations, and Jeroboam really took over and extended Israel's kingdom. Listen to this for just a second. Listen to a couple of verses here that describe this time period of Jeroboam, which is when Hosea was prophesying. He said in 2 Kings 14 that Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah. Remember Jonah? Which he spoke through his servant Jonah. And now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and all his might and how he fought and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus. So he's up in Syria. He's extended Israel's borders all the way up to Syria which he recovered for Israel, Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? In fact, 
It's during this time frame that Amos also wrote, and listen to Amos uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Amos, in talking about the judgment that's going to come on Israel, says, I will smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end. What does that sound like to you? These people had summer houses. They had lake houses. They had ivory houses. This was a period of great prosperity for Israel under Jeroboam. And that's going to end, he says. That's going to end. With the birth of Jezreel, he says three things. He says the house of Jehu is going to come to an end. That great line that brought about some of that prosperity in Israel is going to come to an end. That's the first thing he said. I'm going to skip the second for just a second. And the third thing he said was, I'm going to break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That was a very well-known, well-attested battle in the valley of Jezreel. You guys have heard of Armageddon, right? Har Megiddo is what it is in Hebrew, means the hill of Megiddo. That's around Jezreel. It's a, a plain there in Israel that I, I won't get the quote exactly right, and this is off the cuff. I'm just remembering this as I teach it now. Uh, Napoleon said it's one of the greatest battlefields on earth, you know, and uh, sure enough, it's going to be where the armies are gathered in the future, but there was a significant battle in 733 BC when Israel was soundly and roundly defeated in their backyard uh, in 733 BC. And that's what all commentators, there's no dispute here, recognizes the prophetic import of that, breaking the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So we have two things that Jezreel indicates. The end of the line of Jehu, Jeroboam and then his son came after me, reigned for like six months only. That was the end of the line of Jehu. And then the battle of Jezreel in 733. So what happened when he says, I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel? The second thing. Now, most commentators, most writers say, well, that must be the end of the kingdom in 722 BC. But that doesn't make any sense, really, right? I mean, would you say, I'm going to destroy and bring about an end of the kingdom. Oh, and, and 10 years earlier, they're going to lose a battle, right? No, you wouldn't say that, right? I mean, that would be a little bit anticlimactic. I also say that we'll see in the next child, Lo Ruamah, that that's actually what's going to be prophesied, that end of Israel. So if I'm correct about there being a sequence, that wouldn't make sense either. So what do we do with what seems to be a very clear word at the end of verse four? I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Well, interestingly, kingdom is not the normal word for kingdom there, right? Kingdoms used throughout the Old Testament many times, and that's not this word. It's a similar word, but it's only used less than 10 times. And over half the times it's used, mostly in Joshua, it means the domain of a kingdom, the territorial domain of a kingdom, not the kingdom itself, but the extended land, the, the area of that kingdom. So again, that makes sense that it would be used in Joshua, right? Because that's when they're divvying out the land. That's when they're figuring out where this new people of Israel is going to be in that land. And what I think this prophecy means is, first, there's going to be an end to this dynasty of Jehu. It's going to come to an end, right? That fabulous dynasty that had brought about such prosperity, that had brought about such extension of land that we read about before, all the way to Syria, all the way to Hamath. The, the kingdom's going to end, and then the land is going to be brought to an end. They're not going to be able to keep the land that they've gotten. In fact, not only are they going to lose all that extended land of their kingdom, 
then they're going to come and, and receive a sound defeat in the middle of their land, right at Jezreel, right by their capital of Samaria. So essentially what this prophecy means is if you're living in the day of Jeroboam and you've got ivory houses and lake houses and mountain houses and summer houses and you have got it really nice, right? You think, hey, nothing's going to happen to us. Like we are living the high life. We're blessed. Nobody can touch us. And he says, no, that's all coming to an end. Your political leadership is coming to an end. Your domain is coming to an end. And you're going to be defeated soundly. You're going to be back to the old days of a small little country that is not doing so well. And that is what was signified by the child Jezreel. And as I put that up on this slide, you'll see that happened from around 752, which is when Jeroboam and then his son, who lasted for only six months, came to an end all the way down to that date of 733 when they were defeated soundly in the Valley of Jezreel. That takes us to the second child. In Hosea 1, 6 through 7, Lo Ruamah. Let me read that. This one's a lot easier and we'll go a little bit faster. Then Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And Yahweh said to Hosea, Name her Lo Ruamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by Yahweh their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Well, fortunately, this one's really easy. Again, remember our study of kings? Remember, Israel would continue to do wrong, and God would do what? He would have mercy on them, and he would reestablish a covenant with them. He would continue to have mercy. He did it over and over and over again. But we said in our study of kings, God at some point said, no, I'm not having mercy on you anymore. I'm turning you over to the enemy. And that happened for the northern kingdom, which he distinguishes here, right, between the kingdom of Israel, which is that northern ten tribes, and the kingdom of Judah, which is that southern two tribes. He distinguishes between the two. And he says, for the northern ten tribes, I'm not having mercy anymore. My mercy is run out for you. And sure enough, they were defeated by Assyria in 722 BC and taken to exile, scattered among the nations that Assyria ruled over the end of the northern kingdom. You can read about it in 2 Kings 17. But he says, I'm not done with Judah yet. I'm going to have compassion on them. And it's going to show up not by them having military victory through horses and bows and guns and chariots, right? I'm throwing a little bit of modern words in there that weren't in the text. It's going to be through God himself, right? He's going to deliver them himself. And you may, this is a little farther back than our study of Kings, but you may remember when we studied Isaiah 7 and 8 and the prophecy of Emmanuel. Remember that Hezekiah was also threatened by Assyria. And remember, he took the letter that the king of Assyria wrote him and he laid it out before the Lord and he prayed and asked for deliverance. And you remember the angel of the Lord came and struck 185,000 of the Assyrians and routed them when it looked like Assyria was going to do the exact same thing to Judah as they did to the northern kingdom of Israel. And God delivered them in 701 B.C., just 20 years later. So I know we're moving fast and I apologize for that. But that is Hosea 1, 6 through 7. And we see, sure enough, these prophecies are, are going in sequential order and they're exactly what Hosea intended to say through, what God intended to say through Hosea through this relationship between Hosea and Gomer. 
Now we get to Hosea 1, 8, and 9. Now the sections actually goes on to even 2, verse 1, but we're not going to read verses 10 to 1, and again, it's for time's sake only. Um, in reality, that section, verses 10 of chapter 1 to 1 of chapter 2, is a transition between the narrative and the poetry. In fact, it's in verse 10 that we lose our first, next, 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 next. Okay, so uh, I can point you to uh, more details about those three verses, but we're going to focus just on 8 and 9 for right now as we trace the narrative. So verse 8, when she, when Gomer had weaned lo ruama, lo in Hebrew just means no, so Ruama means mercy, no mercy, and lo ami means my people, so not my people, no my people, not my people. When she had weaned lo ruama, Gomer had weaned her, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And Yahweh said, named him lo ami, not my people, because you are not my people and I am not your God. So again, this one is not uh, a difficult one. People don't debate what it's about. What does it mean? It's very clear. Uh, everyone agrees. This is when God ended his, as it were, by all appearances, his covenant relationship with Israel and all the protections and all the benefits and blessings of them being his special people, having their land, his protection, his care and goodness towards them. He reversed all that and said, you're out of the land. You don't have my protection. Remember in the book of Ezekiel, God actually leaves the temple before this and leaves them to themselves are defeated by Babylon. And it appears to be the end of the, the people of Judah as we would know them, the end of the people of Israel as we would know them. That was in 586 BC that that happened. Now, the reality is that wasn't the end of them. God and uh, the book of Ezekiel said, I'm actually going to go to exile with you. And you read about like in Esther, right? Where most people who've been round, you know, soundly defeated like that, most nations, that is the end of them. Right. And you and they pass off the scene and and who knows what other nation rises up and becomes. Well, that wasn't the case with God. He stayed with them. He was with them even in exile, even when people tried to exterminate them in exile. He wouldn't allow it. Right. If it meant keeping the king up at night, reading a book uh, to save his people, then he would do that. But he went with them. So it looked like the end of Israel, but it wasn't the end of them. But nevertheless, for our purposes here, that happened in 586 B.C. So let's pause, I'm going fast, and prepare ourselves to go over to Hosea 3, because as I mentioned, that's where the story picks back up. There is the poetic interlude in between that we covered on Wednesday night, and I argued there that it was similar to Paul in Romans 11, you know, seeing what God was going to do, seeing what God had planned to do for Israel, and he broke out in praise at the end of Romans 11. I said that's kind of what I think happens in and Hosea 2, as he's just said, you're no longer my people, but he says, but it's going to happen. One day you are going to be my people. And he goes and breaks out into this song. And I think that's the main reason why you have this poetic interlude when you wouldn't expect a nursery rhyme in the middle of your rice recipe on BettyCrocker.com, right? But I think another reason, possibly, and I'll just throw this out in passing, is there is going to be a break in the story. You see, most of these things have happened pretty I don't know, close to the period of Hosea's time. And again, that's a really good argument for the view that the many days that are going to come in Hosea 3 speak to the exile, right? So maybe that's another reason why there's this break in the narrative to indicate, in my view, that there's going to be a, a period of time before the next event that Hosea and Gomer's life signifies between God and Israel. Maybe, maybe not. Regardless, 
As we get to Hosea 3, there has been a separation between Hosea and Gomer. It's not listed in Hosea 1, but clearly there's been some sort of separation in the same way that there's been this separation between God and Israel, right? We know there's a separation because he says in Hosea 3.1, I want you to go again and love her, right? So there's been a separation. She is, according to the NAS, this woman, Gomer, is loved by her husband, and that's not the proper translation. So those of you who have the ESV, it's, it's better here, loved by another man. The Hebrew is just loved by a friend, loved by a companion, um, there's a lot of good arguments why it's Gomer still being uh, interested in other men besides her husband. There's a lot of good arguments for that, but just think of one, right? If, if God is telling Hosea to go love her again, what it doesn't make sense for him to say, she's loved by her husband, but I want you to go love her again, right? Well, I'm already loving her. You just said I was already loving her. No, so this is a woman who is still loving others, not her own husband. And God is commanding him to go again and love her. There's been a separation clearly. And God is saying, I want you to go again and love her. In fact, it's clear in verse, uh, end of verse one, that that's the case because Israel is a lover of raisin cakes, right? In the same way that Gomer is not loving what she, who she is supposed to, Israel is not loving who she is supposed to. And what is this raisin cakes? They're not always bad. Raisin cakes aren't a bad thing. It's not that we shouldn't put raisins in our baking. But, you know, David, when David brought the uh, ark to Jerusalem, he celebrated by handing out raisin cakes at the end. He says, uh, well, I don't have the verse written. Second Kings 6, 19. He, he, he gives, oh, no, here it is. No, just distributed all the people to the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. So he's giving out as part of that celebration. Raisin cakes, and even in Solomon, Song of Solomon two five, it's a, it's a very uh, celebrated as a good thing. But raisin cakes can be bad. Uh, listen to Jeremiah seven eighteen. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women need dough. So it's a family affair, right? The kids are out getting sticks, the dads are getting the fires together, and the women are getting bread ready, dough ready to make cakes for the queen of heaven. They pour out libations to other gods to spite me. So in this case, it's clearly more of this latter that Israel is loving. They're loving these idolatrous ceremonies that were often sexual in nature. Uh, they were certainly worshiping other gods as part of them. And God looks at that and says, that's kind of like Gomer, loving other men. And Israel's doing that to me. But, you know, Hosea, I want you to go love her anyways. I want you to go again and love her. So that's clear enough. But And Hosea obeys in verse 2. He goes, it says in the NAS, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And this is kind of getting hard. This is where it gets hard. What is he doing here? Is it a payment? It's translated here as a payment. A lot of people don't think it's a payment. To whom is it given? It doesn't say. What is it for? It doesn't say. Why did he use those items? Why did he use silver and barley? I don't know. And there are a lot of really interesting arguments to be read about this. Many, many different theories. I'm sure you've heard sermons that explain he was at the slave market buying her back, right? Maybe so. Maybe he was 
doing something else. It's it's not clear. It's not uh, part of Hosea 3. One of the reasons I was drawn to me initially, or I was drawn to it initially, was it's so short. That's a nice thing, but also it lacks some details. So it's not clear at all what's happening here. But I want you to think of a story. I, I'm not going to tell you all the different ideas people have shared. I'm just going to tell you what I think is the best, even though it's it's still very difficult. Try to think of a story yourself in the Old Testament of someone uh, thinking about marriage and giving barley to someone and then having to wait to see if the marriage goes through. Anybody got something? Ruth, right? Think about Ruth, right? So Ruth 3, Boaz is asleep after a day of work, hard day of work. He awakes, and there's a lady at his feet, right? And what does she ask? She essentially wants to, him to marry her, right? She, he's a near kinsman. And Boaz says, hey, I like that plan. He agrees to it, right? And they lay back down. They awake early so that she can leave before dawn. And Boaz does what? Remember, she holds out her her garment, and what does he do? He fills it up with barley, right? And then she takes it back, and Ruth tells Naomi what happened, and especially about the barley that was given. And Naomi tells Ruth to wait, which is going to happen in our text here in just a second, right? She's going to have to wait. Gomer's going to have to wait many days. So I think that's probably a good uh, picture of what's happening. Now, what's happening in Ruth, uh, let me put this quote on the screen. I'm not keeping up. I actually, um, I'm going to let you just read it. I'm going to pause for a second. I hope you can read it. Um, this is a guy named Dan Block, and he's just explaining that, hey, this is likely related to a betrothal. It's likely related to a betrothal. They called a mohar, a bride price. It was given to the bride. And I think this is probably the best uh, explanation of what's going on here. Better than paying a slave master. You know, some people will say, hey, she... She, you know, was ruined her life. She went off. She had to sell herself in slavery. And this is her buying. This is Hosea buying her back from slavery. I don't know. That's a neat story. But I think this is probably the best explanation of what's happening is this betrothal price. But we really need to figure out what does this purchase or what does this action of Hosea for Gomer? What does that mean for God in Israel? That's the key, right? That's what we really want to find out. And yet we don't really know what. Hosea was doing. So what do we do in that case? Well, that's where our second clue that we haven't talked about yet is really going to come into play. And, and even this mention of a betrothal, because you'll remember when we studied or or not, if you go back and look, when we studied Hosea 2, the section that corresponds to this one in the narrative was Hosea 2, 16 through 20. And in that section, you'll recall there was a betrothal right? There was a giving of gifts. There was a covenant being made. And again, marriage, covenant, very similar. So regardless if we fully understand, and I don't, but if we fully understood what Hosea and Gomer were doing, even if we fail to understand fully the ancient Hebrew customs around this or actions between Boaz and Ruth or Hosea and Gomer, we do have sufficient clues to see that Hosea is reestablishing his relationship with Gomer for the payment of a price. And we have a strong clue from Hosea 2 that it's related to a betrothal or the inauguration of a covenant when it comes to Israel and God. So what covenant is that? And we talked about this on Wednesday. For the, so those of you who are with us on Wednesday, we already 
put up this slide. Hey, there's this covenant. Which one is it? It's not named. It's clearly the new covenant. All the aspects that are spoken of in Hosea 2, 16 to 20, clearly show it's the same covenant as announced by the other latter prophets, by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And we have verses in each of those, even Zechariah, to show that this covenant that's being inaugurated, this covenant that's being spoken of through Hosea's going again and loving Gomer is the new covenant. Well, does that fit? Did God create or inaugurate or establish a covenant with Israel through the payment of some price? Yes, right? He did. What was the price? Jesus says, Luke twenty two twenty. this cup, which is poured out for you, the cup of his blood, is the new covenant in my blood. Or Hebrews 9, 15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of our transgressions, there was a price paid, there was a price paid for the initiation of a covenant between God and Israel, namely the new covenant. And that's what Hosea's actions with Gomer indicates here. When did that happen? For our slide here, sometime around 30, 33 AD, just after the birth of Christ, 30 some odd years later, he was crucified. Through his death, he brought about the new covenant in his blood. Now, we're going to get to Hosea 3.3 next, and that's the hardest verse of all of these three chapters, I think. But So I want to pause again and just kind of celebrate what I think we just did, right? There were three views. There are four views of Hosea 3, 4, and 5. I never told you one. It's just a combination of the two we have looked at. And I can give you more details about that later if you're interested. There were three we looked at. One was, hey, there's not enough information given. In fact, if you worry about the timing, you're going to miss the point of it. And I said, no, it's exactly opposite. That's why this is given. It's given to help us understand the timing of it. So, And there is a temporal framework given. Like, no, that's not right. Then there were the two views left. One was the exile were the many days that Israel was without the six things. And then they turned to God in the last days. And I said, that's not a bad argument. I mean, Hosea was right before the exile. And I can, you know, you look at some of the New Testament apostles and you wonder, are they interpreting the Old Testament that way? Like it's, it's we, you know, trying to figure this out. Maybe that's right. Or is it the way I described? Well, what I think we just did was I think we just showed that that view is not correct and can't be correct because if indeed the indication or what's indicated by Hosea and Gomer and Hosea going back and loving her again is the new covenant, then the many days have to be after that, right? So whatever the many days are, they can't be from 586 BC to zero. They have to be after the making of the covenant. Okay, so I think that is helpful in terms of us saying, along with the audience of Sherlock Holmes, aha, okay, I see, I see, and I see how that can be a clear sort of cutting through those two difficulties, which one is right. But let's go on and let's look at Hosea 3, 3 to 5. Hosea 3, 3 is really difficult. There are four things that happen after Hosea goes again and loves Gomer. He says to her, You'll stay with me many days. You must not play the harlot. I'm reading from the NAS here. You'll stay with me many days. You'll not play the harlot. You shall not have a man. So I will be toward you. So what's happening? He just went and took her back 
He paid what we believe was a betrothal price to initiate marriage, right? Betrothal is not the full consummation of marriage, right? It's a little bit like, um, oh my goodness, engagement. engagement thank you. Uh, I just totally lost that word. Uh, a little bit like engagement, but more serious, right? It would take a formal divorce to end it in those days. But it was not the consummation of the marriage. It was a little bit like an engagement. Call it a fusion between engagement and marriage, but not full marriage. So Hosea has done this with Gomer, it seems. He's re-betrothed her, if that's even a thing. He's re-entered into a relationship with Gomer. And though that relationship had been re-established, there was going to be a period of waiting. He says to her, you will stay with me many days. What's happening during that long period? What, what's going on during that? Well, the second and third things answer what's happening during that many days. First, and this one's not that hard, during that long period of waiting, she has to stop playing the harlot. She's not going to play the harlot. That makes sense. He's brought her back. He's reestablished. And she's going to be staying with him, not playing the harlot. That's fine. But what about the third? Not just play the harlot, but you shall not have a man. Now, the phrase hayat laish means to be married. When it says to, to not have a man, it means to be married. That's what the phrase means. He just reestablished a relationship with her, but she has to wait. And while waiting, she can't play the harlot. Okay, I got it. And she can't be married. So what's, why? Why did you betroth her if you're going to wait this long period? It's like, you know, sometimes we look at these folks that have, you know, three-year engagements and you think, what are you doing? Like, hey, let's do this a lot faster, right? I mean, you've, you've, marriage is a good thing. You've found someone. Like, I know you need a plan, but three years, come on now, like six months, nine months, maybe, right? So this is like a lot. What's he doing here? That doesn't make any sense. That Some translations try to try to overcome that. The NIV, I don't know that anyone's using that here, but the NIV says, nor shall you be intimate with any man. Again, that's not what it means. It means to be married. The Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, the LXX, says, nor shall you be married to another man, as if She's saying the same, but another is not in there anywhere. No, Hosea is doing something really weird. And so we don't need to try to retranslate it. It's just for many days, he's not going to marry her, despite the fact that he's betrothed her back. I betrothed you. It's going to be a really long betrothal period. During it, you will not play the harlot, nor will you be fully mine. Then comes the most difficult of the four. It's just short little, little phrases, little words. And literally something to the effect of, and I, I, and also I to you, and also I to you. But but just a couple of little bitty words, it's really hard. It's kind of like Proverbs sometimes where you're like, I need some more context. You know, what are you saying here? And as with the payment in Hosea 3.2, there's a lot of ideas given to try to understand what's meant by this last phrase. I'm going to tell you what I think is the correct one. I feel actually more confident about this than I did the previous, although I think both are correct. Uh, it simply means, then indeed, I will be yours. Then indeed, I will be yours. In other words, after a long period of waiting where Gomer's not with other men and not with Hosea himself, then he will be hers and they will be consummated and together fully in marriage. Now, there's a number of confirmations of this understanding, but I'm going to give you two. First, whatever's going on between Hosea and Gomer, it's indicative of what happens between God and Israel. And what happens between God and Israel, if we look down, right? There are many days of waiting without things. And then in the end, what happens? They return to God. So we need something in this story 
to round out Hosea and Gomer's story, right? So it makes sense that it would end with, after those many days where you're not with another man and you're not fully with me, then I come to you, right? So that makes sense. And then there's a, there's a section in Deuteronomy 21, which talks about, um, it's very similar language. I won't oversell it. It's not identical language, but very similar language. And it speaks about the procedure to be followed when an Israelite goes to war and sees among the captives a woman he desires to marry. And Deuteronomy 21, 12 says, you shall bring her home to your house. She shall remain or wait, exact same word, remain, wait in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. So he brings her back, but they're not immediately consummated. There's a period of waiting, in this case for mourning. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. Again, very similar phraseology, not the same. There's a bringing home, a starting of the process. There's a waiting period. Then in a very similar phrase, we have the end result. After that, you may go into her and be her husband. And that's what we have in Hosea 3, 4 through 5. Now, that's what Hosea does for Gomer. He buys her back. He, he gives a betrothal price is what I'm arguing. He, they wait many days. They're not together. Then in the end, he goes to her. And that is indicative of what happens with God in Israel. And that's what we have in Hosea 3, 4 through 5. Because, and they, oh, I, I got some slides that I wanted to show you. That's right. So here is the question, right? Is this, is it the exile? I should have put these up there. I was proud of these slides. Here's, here's the, is it the exile perhaps? And we say no, right? That's like our rice recipe that was out of order. Like that doesn't make sense, right? Rather, we know that this is the age after the age after Christ has died, poured out his Holy Spirit, and we have this period of waiting. So that's what we have in Hosea 3, 4 through 5. And it says, for the sons, oh, I must have not put in the, the, the verses for 3, 4 through 5. So you just need to look at your, your copies of the scripture. For the sons of Israel will remain many days, in the same way that Gomer did, will remain many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Now, these six items that Israel will be without, in the same way that Gomer is not going to be fully um, consummated with Hosea, these six items are, to be sure, both illicit and licit, both illicitly used by Israel and licitly. That just means lawfully or good or bad. Like, they're both, they're not all bad, they're not all good. In the same way that Hosea... You know, she had a relationship with Gomer, which was good. They were married, but she also had relations with other men, which was bad. And that same thing was true of God and Israel, and especially with Israel's use of these things. You have three sort of pairs. The first two are political. The next two are cultic or relate to worship. And the last two are related to divination or revelation. Right. And some of these are bad, like uh, a standing stone or sacred pillar. Those were seen throughout the prophets as a negative thing used for idolatry, but they were also used in the patriarchal period at times for good things as, as stones of remembrance. And ephod and household idols, when paired in judges, is talking about like those that period of, of Micah. We talked about that priest, you know, where they're doing false divination and doing things that were not appropriate. But the ephod was given to the high priest for the purpose of revelation, right? For the purpose of, to use the word divination, which is generally has a negative connotation. But the point is that Israel is going to be without licit or illicit, without good or bad, political kingship, sacrifice, 
and without revelation, good or bad, for a period of time. Now, there have been really two periods where that's true of Israel. One is the exile, and one is the current age. And we have argued, and I think uh, is correct, that it's talking about this current age, where Israel has been without sacrifice, without kingship, without prophet or revelation now for many, many years. And, you know, they, they, it's possible we're reaching the end of those days. We don't know. Certainly we're supposed to live with expectation. Uh, but there have been many, many days since the death of Christ and the inauguration of the New Covenant that they've been without them. Now to the last verse, verse 5. Afterward, after these many days, and here's where I think those people that view it as being indeterminate, you can't figure out the time. Here's where I think they're right. I don't know. Is it after 2,000 years, after 2,021 years, after 3,000 years? I don't know. But after that long period of time, the sons of Israel will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to Yahweh and to his goodness in the last days. So there will be a return of Israel, and there will be a kingdom. I mean, it's a return to David their king. And whether that's David David, as in, you know, the resurrected David serving as a prince, or whether that's just a reference to the Messiah, either way, it's going to be a Davidic kingship ruling in Jerusalem, with Israel fully following God, and as the millennial kingdom shows in other prophets, as it's demonstrated, really blessing all the other nations through them being the head of nations. Regardless, again, after many days, Israel will return to God. It will be a return that includes fear, they come trembling to Yahweh, but a return that also is filled with goodness. And we don't have to wonder what that goodness is. It's explained at the end of Hosea 2. It's not just goodness in the sense of fruit of the spirit. It's a sowing in the land. It's a response of heavens and grain and earth and wine. Unless you think those are base things compared to love and hope and joy, I understand, but they're good things. These are good things that God has given us as humans. They are, they are real blessings and they are going to be a part of that future kingdom. <laughs> I think that clearly demonstrates both the a premillennial eschatology. I don't mean to use big words, but but that there is a kingdom coming. It I think that clearly indicates that God foreordained and foredeclared that there would be a period without profit, without signs, without miracles, without sacrifice. So we don't need to grow weary. We have just as strong, we have just as firm rock to stand on as John provided to the first century disciples when he said. Hey, we knew Peter was going to die. Jesus said he was and said how he was going to die. Jesus did not say that I was not going to die. He just said, if I wanted to, what is that to you? We knew and you can return. Don't be afraid of the persecution. Don't be afraid of that. Come back. Stay on the way. Don't go back to Judaism. We have that same clarity, I think, as we look now 2,000 years later and say all this was planned. And while it is very difficult to see Israel go through what it has and to see the lack of prophets when we know God is, even though we can't see him. And we, we believe he's done these things in the past and we affirm he will do them again in the future, but the mockers will say, sure, he will. Yeah. Show me something. You know, show me where he's done it. Show me in the scientific age when he's done it. 
Well, I'm sorry to say, but those people back then were very scientific too. I know they had their problems and I know they didn't know everything we know, but they were pretty smart too. They solved a lot of problems that we stand on their shoulders for. But nevertheless, we don't have to fear that. This was all foreclared and foreknown by God. And, they, and, and God will come and he will return with signs and wonders and prophets. And he will bring about a kingdom for a thousand years with Israel at the head and the nations blessed through it. And I think this chapter makes that very clear. But despite all that, I think that this study gives us a little bit more. And this is what I'll end with. In addition to all that, I have found this helpful in my life in another way, again, in the realm of marriage. There's a lot of marriage themes we've seen here, right? Again, a covenant is like a marriage. We saw betrothal. There's a lot to say about love, right? We, we think about love with marriage. In verse 1 of chapter 3, the word love is repeated four times. Now, people speak of incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. Those are just big words that mean things about God that we can imitate and things about God that we can't. So like an incommunicable attribute, something we can't, we can't follow or mimic, would be like his omnipotence or his omnipresence. Like it would be wrong for us to say, be like God in that, because you'll never be like God. There's a difference between us and him. A communicable attribute would be his mercy, right? And we could say, hey, be mercy like God is mercy, like God is merciful. Be merciful like God is merciful. And in this passage, we see God act in a way that we can and should mimic, especially in our marriage relationships. And again, not all of us are married. Not all of us will ever be married. And you can definitely benefit from this, even if that's not the case for you. But it certainly has a very good application in that case. How does God act when he is in covenant with someone, when he is married? God's not ashamed to use that language with Israel, right? when he's married or in covenant with someone? And how does he act in particular when a partner acts wrongly against their spouse? In this case, adultery, although I think for us, most of the time, it will be in smaller acts of wrongness. But if it's true in adultery, it can certainly be true in smaller acts of perceived or mistaken or misunderstood wrongdoing by our spouse. How do we see God act? Well, he acts in love. And what kind of love? Well, I think you can describe it in three words. One, it's unconditional. He loves because. When I ask my kids why something and they say because, what do I always say? It's only the beginning of a reason. It's not a reason. Don't answer with because. I asked you why. Well, here's where I have to go back on that. I don't I don't think God does it for any reason other than because. I guess you could say because of his glory or because he's covenanted with them. But I think it's really probably fair here to say that God just loves. He just loves because. And if you're covenanted with someone, if you marry, I don't think you need to give a lot of reasons. And if that person has wronged you in some way, whether large scale or whether small or just perceived, you just love. That love is unconditional. It's active, right? He says to Hosea, go, do something, right? He doesn't say, he doesn't wait back and say, I love. If they return, I'll accept them, right? No, he makes payment. He makes great sacrifice. And especially if you think about what we're saying was what he did with Israel, the sacrifice of his beloved only son, right? 
So he doesn't just unconditionally love. He actively unconditionally loves. He does something. So you've been wrong, let's say, perceived or not, large or small. You know, it, it's going to take a moment to get over that. It's going to be hard. At least if you're anything like me, you're going to be upset and angry. Uh, but there can come a point where you say, God loves this way. I'm going to love this way. And I'm in covenant with this person. And I'm going to pursue them. And I'm going to love them. And lastly, I would describe it as patient. God waits many days after that, right? Many days. And I think we could see in a situation where we're trying to love like that, it might uh, not go right just right away. And it may take some patience. But I think that is something that we can learn about from watching God and the way that he loves his partner, as it were, his covenanted Israel. We can love that way as well. We can mimic that by loving our spouses unconditionally, actively, and patiently when we have been wronged. Okay, that's all I'm going to say today. I'm going to have us pray, and then we'll we'll sing together. Uh, but let's pray together and thank God for his word, for his spirit, and ask him to help us believe and obey it. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you especially for your spirit that you left with us. I think about the benefit again of the apostles of having you there, of walking alongside them, or of Moses being able to talk with you face to face. And yet you were so good that when you ascended back to heaven, you didn't leave us as orphans. You gave your spirit to live in us, which is honestly better than either of before, better than Christ among us, which was fabulous, better than you in the, the glory in the temple, which was fabulous. To think that you've left your spirit in each of us is really the best of all. And, well, not best of all. We, we look forward to the day when all three are true. When Christ is ruling in, in Jerusalem and those of his followers are spirit filled. And then even better, the new heavens and the new earth when all of this is true. When God, the Father, you also are dwelling on earth and not separated from people. God, we, we look forward to that day. We thank you for it. And we know that in the meantime, it's our job to wait. It's our role to wait. And not just wait, but to love each other, to, to make disciples, to share your message, to bear each other's burdens, to care for each other, to encourage each other as long as we see the day still drawing near. So help us to do that, Lord. Help us to obey it. Help us in our covenant relationships for those of us who are married father to uh, it's, it's hard living close to someone and there can be disagreements and difficulties and people can wrong each other and help us to love the way that you love help us to imitate your character in that and and be a light to the world where this kind of kind of behavior where this kind of love isn't on display isn't seen very often help us to all be like that father Give us your grace. Help us by your spirit to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.